gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. Hello and welcome to this, the latest episode of Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. I'm your host this week, I'm Stephen Wilson, and this week we're going to be talking about something more towards the east of the world, but we'll talk a wee bit more about that in just a wee second. But before we get into this week's discussion, just a bit of housekeeping from us here at Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. Uh, please subscribe to us, we're on all good podcasting platforms, be it Android, Spotify, and any ones you can find on Google, just search for us, Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet, as well as our extra feed, Suplex Retweet Extra, where we've got so much more bonus content that we bring to you from the world of professional wrestling. And you can also find us on all forms of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Suplex Retweet, as well as on YouTube, where we've got a brand new show that debuted this past weekend, The Conspiracy Theory with the returning David Campbell. Now, before we get into the topic again, I'm going to introduce my panel for this evening, a rather small panel to go into this in-depth discussion. To many, they are the voices of You Japan Pro Wrestling on this podcast. Many people would class it as the your version for You Japan of Ant and Deck, Holly and Philip Schofield, even Pierce Morgan and Susanna Reid. But in my opinion, they're more like our New Japan version of Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock. It's the host of East Meets West. It's Grant McRobbie and Scott McLeod. <laughs> You could not have thought of any worse comparisons to make, honestly. What? Well, who, who would you rather be, Boris or Hancock? <laughs> Neither, to be honest with you. Well, I'd rather be Philip Schofield because the other one's a tit. Whoa, 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 whoa. I will not have that said about Holly Willoughby. Take that back. I mean, I know she'll probably she'll probably DM us after this. Like, what did you say about me? <laughs> I mean. One of the comparisons you made was probably accurate because, you know, I wouldn't trust Grant behind the wheel either. <laughs> wow. Wow, I thought you were going to say oh. he was a bit of an arsehole like Piers Morgan. But... <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, and as usual, we've got a producer here. He is the red shoes of this podcast. It's Kwaku Aji. I will take that. I mean, I do have a pair of red Adidas shoes, so yes. Uh, I shall wear that from tonight because of that. Thank you very much. Quacko, for doing political analogies, who would you class yourself as? Are you kind of like the Grant Shaps of this team? <laughs> nah, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. Um, I like to think there's a, some good guy in there, but I can't really think of anybody in the UK government that thinks, screams to mind. I could be really harsh and said Michael Gove, but I think that's nah, good. because I don't like... I, well, I'm not exactly a looker, but I don't look like I'm looking at myself from the back of a spoon. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got a bit of UK government Tory bashing before we start the show. <laughs> why, why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> I mean, if, you're, if you've accidentally come here from Guido Fox, this is not the podcast for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not here to talk about Brexit, coronavirus, or anything that the Tories want to try and spin in their own direction. No, we're here to talk about New Japan Pro Wrestling this weekend. More specifically, we're here to talk about one of their signature tournaments that round about this time this year, or any year, New Japan Pro Wrestling usually holds their premier tournament of the year, the G1 Climax. Now, this year's tournament was firstly delayed, meant to be delayed because of the Tokyo Olympics, but as you may have well known, unless you've been living in a hole or some sort of bunker for the last four months, 
its status is unknown due to the COVID-19 pandemic that's affecting the world. So we don't know if we're going to have a G1 Climax this year, even though Japan is back and performing in front of crowds. But we're going to talk about the history of the G1 Climax on this week's show to get you in the mood if it does go ahead. And of course, if you just want to go back and watch some old content from New Japan. Now, we're going to go all the way back, Grant, to 1974, when this tournament first came about. It wasn't called the G1 Climax back then, it was called the World League. And as a, the New Japan expert, as you know, you'll probably have some idea. Back then, the whole idea of it wasn't the battle of the premier athletes on the roster. It was Japan versus international wrestlers in a unique concept back then. Yeah, it was a totally different style, format, and just complete feeling for those like first several years when they were running it. It was just something different, and I mean, it's one of those things. If you can find videos of it, good luck. It's hard to it's hard to find. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's like when you try to find even the some classic WWE content from back then. Even though they've got the network nowadays, you just can't find stuff from back then. But it was. Definitely a unique field. I've got the field in front of me from that one. Uh, there was, uh, oh, father of the friend of the show, Stan, S- Stan Stasiak. Obviously, <laughs> uh, Scott, your brother is very fond of his son. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, uh, so follows one of us on Twitter, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this whole idea that they had in this first tournament of Japanese wrestlers versus international wrestlers. If you kind of think about it, it's a concept that would actually work quite well in the current G1, given how unique the New Japan roster is these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. There's so many different like gaijin wrestlers that are like for much of history they've been used as like the heels of the company coming in and kind of taking over. But uh, you've got more fan favourites nowadays, and I think yeah, with the amount of foreign wrestlers you've got. I mean, maybe not now and the men can't get to Japan unless they live there full time. Mm-hmm. You probably do two whole blocks because you know you got John Moxley, Juice Robinson, Jay White, and in the past you had the, the Bucks and Bullet Club. So yeah, like it, it goes to show how reliant New Japan has become on just outside talent as well as their own people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, def- definitely. Because uh, Grant, you got if you looked kind of if you did that format nowadays, as Scott mentioned, you've got those guys from the outside of Japan side, but on the other on the other bracket. You would have some unique matches we've seen a lot of the times, but for that block as well, you'd have the likes of Ibushi, Tanahashi, and Okada. It would kind of make for an interesting dynamic if they did that different split. Yeah, I mean, you could. There'd be actually some matches that you just wouldn't normally. It, it would be really good for like doing of inter inter stable matches, like rather than like like having Bullet Club vs Bullet Club, Lij vs Lij, Chaos vs Chaos, and it could really bring some new stars to the front. Yeah, definitely. It would make things really interesting. But one of the early on uh, in the tournament, they were kind of flip-flopping between the kind of styles of the tournament, Scott. And they would, even early doors, even though it didn't really cement it really, they kind of got this idea of the whole round-robin tournament. And I think we mentioned this last year when we talked about the tournament show, how unique the fact that the G1 does it in a round-robin as opposed to some sort of elimination bracket, which kind of helps with the selling factor of it, would you think? Yeah, definitely, because like, over the years the tournaments varied from single, single elimination to a round-robin style of tournament. Mm-hmm. And over the years, I think, as they've added more people to the blocks, like the A and B block, and they've gotten bigger, I think it's become more of a endurance test. Uh, they really, really look at it, and 
given that New Japan Care calls itself the king of sports, presents a more real sporting aspect. Tournaments are a big part of sports, and a lot of sporting tournaments do go on for quite a while, so it actually fits that kind of ethos that uh, New Japan's going for with this tournament. And actually, you look at it as the blocks are going bigger, it's not really going easier, it's just longer for people to go and like, it just gets tougher as the, the weeks go on, you have to go through different matches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Grant, when I was looking back actually, one of the things I found quite interesting is that in the past, in particular, in 1989 they did it, they actually experimented with doing four blocks as opposed to the two. What was your thoughts on seeing that at all when you were looking back and stuff? I thought it was actually quite a cool way to do it. Um, maybe limits your some of your matchups slightly compared to what you could get away with, but it definitely gives it a more sort of going from that round robin to begin with and then into the elimination format gives you a best of both worlds mm-hmm. yeah definitely I quite like the idea of it I mean as you could say it would kind of you would not have as many matches on it. maybe it would kind of take what Scott mentioned about the endurance aspect of it you wouldn't have got that as much on that one because obviously you'd maybe have smaller blocks maybe five as they had back then so you think the fact that as Scott mentioned Grant that the New Japan's so known for that hard hitting true sports style that it maybe dilute the tournament a wee bit even if it does Add to a wee, uh, make it a wee bit different if they tried it again? I actually think rather than diluting it, it could be good because if people aren't having to wrestle as many matches, they're in stronger form and you can have bigger matches out of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, you know, in the recent years where the matches have got longer. I mean, we're talking about when they did the four block tournament in 2000, but some of the matches in that tournament were only, I think the longest one was 20 minutes. Well, as nowadays, as maybe we talk about later on, we're getting 30 odd minute matches. So it could allow for a lot more of those matches as opposed to what they've had recently with one big match and a few shorter ones, don't you think? Yeah, def- definitely. It gives you those longer options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But one of the things, Scott, as well, that's quite, that quite unique in the history, something they kind of brought into it in this tournament in 2000, as I mentioned to it, they started, they've started even more so recently, the integration of both junior heavyweights into this tournament and obviously with heavyweights now in New Japan, we kind of see the divisions are kind of separated and then eventually the juniors will move up. You think the fact that they throw, they throw junior heavyweights into it now especially more often is what helps make this a bit more unique in, its way, in a way? I think so, because you have certain juniors who eventually their goal is to uh, move up and be a heavyweight and interact with the more of the bigger stars and some who are kind of happy where they are being part of the junior division. I think that given that one of the first juniors that went up is someone like Jushin Thunder Liger, which is another example of like just how iconic a career Jushin Liger's had, who recently retired the most recent Wrestle Kingdom. And mm-hmm. like it's it's quite interesting you get to see a different dynamic that you wouldn't usually see because like you, yeah, you see quite a few of these heavyweights mix up uh, regularly. Then you throw a junior and then you've got some matchups you haven't seen yet or you maybe didn't think you wanted to see until you actually get them. Like you had uh, I believe Prince Devitt, while he's still junior heavyweight champion, competed one year. He had the most recent one being uh, Will Osprey as IWGP junior heavyweight champion. And mm-hmm. seeing some of the matchups, and sometimes, like, even if they really beat a top star, it can be uh, quite a shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned Joseph Van der Liger there, Scott. There's a thing I've heard a lot recently is that the world's went downhill since Jushin Van der Liger retired. It just seems to have all just, you know, went to pot since that day, you know. In, you know, he, he retires a couple months later, there's a pandemic. I mean, I'm not saying they're connected, but I'm not saying they're not either. 
it's, it's absolutely crazy. But uh, Grant, before we get into the whole, because we're still kind of talking a lot here about before it actually officially became the G1 in 1991. But when I was looking back at these early tournaments, when it was before it was known, it was, it was, it was called the World League when it first started. It was also called the MSG League and the IWGP League. See some of the names who were in these early tournaments. I had no idea that a lot of these guys were associated with the world of Japanese wrestling. One name that obviously came up is Stan Hansen, whoever they know as an American is synonymous with Japan. But you also had John Studd, Jimmy Snooker, Andre the Giant, even a controversial figure, Hulk Hogan, who won the 1983 tournament. It's crazy some of these names. Oh yeah, it's it's there's a lot of like sort of it feels almost like forgotten history when you get a lot of these guys that would just associate as being big in America, whether it's WWF, WCW, whatever. Like even like Dusty Rhodes was in it in nineteen eighty. They're they're names that like you, you synonymously throw with stuff from the West and then you're like, Wait, these guys were in Japan? What when did we miss this? There's a theory with a Hulk Hogan win because he won a belt when he won it. And a lot of people actually thought that this was the beginning of the IWG Heavyweight Championship, but it turned out it wasn't. It was just an earlier version of it. Could you? And it turned out they would defend that title early. But could you imagine? It's just crazy to think that a man so synonymous with WWF and Hulk Hogan could have been seen by many as a, a pioneer of this Japan, just based on the fact that he got a belt for winning a tournament. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, you've got, you've got Hogan, and while not ever been in the G1 even during the 90s you had the likes of Jericho Eddie Guerrero all making appearances in Japan it's one of those things that it really does make a a huge addition to someone's repertoire spending that time in the East mm-hmm. yeah, definitely and it's, it's especially in the 90s in the 90s it was just so much more seen uh, now I mentioned Scott in 1991 it became the G1 and as we went through the kind of 90s they started to kind of develop the format a wee bit and one of the things that they tried that we didn't see as much but we're kind of seeing a wee bit now is the whole people who finished near the top of the block would go on to a semi-finals at that point and then a finals Do you, would you I don't know if it's it might just be me but see the whole idea of the top two going through would that be something you would like to see more in the U? the format they're doing now or are you kind of happy with the way they have the format as it stands on the blocks okay no, I'm happy with it, with it as it is because like you have the two people from A bot and B bot and they've got like the most points then they go and they, they face each other and uh, obviously go back to the Hulk Hogan thing it's, it's weird like I remember doing the research for this show looking back at it and saying he won it in 83 and that's just like less than a year before he wins his first WWF title and becomes the star that we know today and it's so weird looking at Hulk Hogan in Japan because he hits more than four or five moves in Japan he actually does like technical wrestling moves and it's weird to see like the difference like you imagine the Hulk Hogan as he was before like the charisma and like the catchphrases with this kind of style in the WWF mm-hmm. and I think Grant the mention of Hulk Hogan it just it sums up the differences between Western wrestling and Eastern wrestling, doesn't it? Yeah, Western wrestling, there's a lot of character in regards to it. It's, it's very loud, it's out there. The characters are just completely different from what you get in Japan. Japan, they just like to tell the story in the ring. They don't really talk to the crowd as much as the likes of Hogan would back in the day. 
eat your vitamins, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, Japan, it tends to be a lot more, they do a lot more post-match as opposed to pre-match after the wrestling's done. It's like, do the action first and then do it. Yeah, and I love that. I love that post-match, the fact that it's really, it's even optional. It, it can be really fun to watch. Some of the stuff you see is hilarious. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you can you can watch New Japan show to show, you don't need to see the backstage comments. You'll still understand pretty much what's happening match to match, show to show. Doesn't mm-hmm. need anyone to force feed you or spoon feed you. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Now, Scott, I mentioned the kind of format to it. They've got, for the tournament that's gone so years, I think it didn't. It took till about 2008, looking back, for them to really find the format that they've kind of got today with the two blocks, winners both go through. It was 14 wrestlers at that point. We've now seen it expanded to so many more. I mentioned obviously two obviously about it, but the fact that it's the, the vying for one spot and it can be separated just by who beats who, it just is an it's such a it gets to the point when we get to the end of it that, that the fact it's only one that goes through makes it so much more exciting as well. Definitely, because I think when you say about how in two thousand or about two thousand eight they said you can't get it right is because they started expanding the box even more because I think as the years went on a more westernized came to Japan. They got a wealth more of, of talent that they all could see believable in a top spot and they wanted to see people who want to see them go at it. So you uh, started inviting more and more stars into it and like I said, I think it's, this is definitely the formula that's worked for them and they've kept it going ever, ever since. Mm-hmm. And like the thing with the, the points is also, it's weird how you can lose your like first two matches and then go on a decent streak and then end up in the final and you can tell like stories throughout the tournament of people desperate trying to make up enough points to get through or if they've lost and they're automatically eliminated like statistically eliminated they've technically got like two matches that's like okay I'm not going through I can maybe try and spoil this tournament for somebody else mm-hmm. guys it's a shame that uh, Hockney as the stats man he is of this podcast doesn't follow you Japan because he'd have a field day with all the stats and mathematics <laughs> behind this tournament trying to figure out who's going through who's going to go where I mean, Grant, I remember us last year trying to figure out who was going to win one block. And I think we came to with about three or four different permutations of it. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. Like, like we, I think we guessed, like, I was about three or four different ones. Mm-hmm. And even then, it's like, the likelihood of getting it, it's like, you can go into it thinking, oh, it's obvious, this guy's going to win it. Like, the, the most obvious one is like saying, like, oh, the IWGP heavyweight champions in the tournament, he's guaranteed to get in the final. It's only happened like four times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, five actually to be exact. Only five times has actually ever happened, and that's also unique given the fact that in G1 history, since it became the G1, all bar four of those tournaments have included the IWGP Heavyweight Champion. So the fact that the I, it's only ever been five times have made the final is it's just it's the unpredictability of it, and I think. Grant, I mean, I remember I actually go back to you on this one. I remember last year you did the preview article for us on the G1 Climax. I think one of the things you mentioned and one of the things you quite liked it, we've always got the expect, the unexpected aspect of it. There's some, there's, the champion's never guaranteed to win. The guy's bottom could get wins over big guys. It's just, it's, it throws, the fact that it's a round robin means that you, there's no foregone conclusions with it as you would get from a single elimination. Yeah, there, there is no way you can guess. Like, I, I think it was last year or the year, year before I went and going, oh, this is, 
like I think it was like a bush or something. I thought, like, oh, he's just going to annihilate everyone. And he actually got quite a few losses at the beginning. I was like, hang on, what's going on here? This isn't what I predicted. I think it was last year. I think Ibushi lost the first two last year. And then he yeah, went He just tore, tore apart everyone after it. Actually, if you think about it, last year, him and Jay White, who made the final, both lost very early on and they both went on a run. And that's what I love with the format, is that it gives a lot of unpredictability and it does the clever thing for their storytelling, the fact that normally between the G1 and the, the, the Tokyo Dome, you're talking there's usually about three or four months, it still sets up usually another title match in the meantime before the Dome to keep things fresh. Mm-hmm. There's always some sort of intermediate feud in the middle of it, but as, as Scott, uh, in the week, it's Shane McMahon returned to Monday Night Raw. <laughs> uh, with Rusev, or as he's known, Miro, on a Twitter, uh, Twitter right now, uh, was saying that, oh, and the WWE are not creating enough new stars, but one of the things that this tournament does well is, even if they don't win it, or even if they don't do well, new stars usually get created in some of the years from this tournament just by giving good showings of themselves and, you know, putting their name out there against the likes of all these big stars, the likes of the Akadas, the Naitos, the Tanahashis. Even if even in defeat, they can come across looking great. Yeah, definitely, because like you said, now that the fields have expanded over the years, you can have a guy have a respectable run through the tournament, but not win, because maybe in the future they see he's not going to win this year, but maybe he'll be a future tournament winner. And they, they have a good way of keeping people's momentum in a way that by the time you return to the following year, they suddenly seem like a strong contender. And with a thing of the the champion being at, being in it, you can earn somebody a, a title shot who may not have gotten one before. It doesn't need to be like already an established name. It could be somebody like Evelyn Sonada for a couple of years, spent some time in a tag team, but they still got big singles matches and they both like pin the champion in previous G1s to earn title shots. And that's the idea that it's basically like, don't just bank on these couple of names to possibly win it. It's basically, you never know who could get the big upset. No, definitely. And that's some of the, some, as well, some of the things we talk about the points get, see the fact there's a point system as well, it can obviously make things great, really close. I mean, a great example was two years ago in the 2018 tournament where in Block B, we had four wrestlers in Ibushi, Omega, Zack Sabre Jr. and Tatsuya Naito all finishing on 12 points. And it, that's, where the, that's where the mathematics start coming in. You have to go back or look back and figure out who beat who, who beat who in that one. It's just... It's, it's crazy. It's a crazy way of thinking at it, but it just makes it just makes six things a wee bit more exciting. I, I love that because usually when you get to like the last show and you've got all these people on the same points and you're like, right, who's going to win on the head to head? And it's it's all like, right, for him to win, these people need to lose, but that person needs to win or that needs to go to a time limit and draw. It just make it just leaves everything completely wild and wide open. And one other aspect, another aspect as well, Grant, that you really like about this tournament, I think many people do, there's always an underdog aspect to it. There's always the one guy, there's always the one spoiler, who you think, usually you do, he's a banker to lose. He's never getting anywhere. But he'll throw a spanner in it, and he'll make things interesting. There's, a, there's one guy who comes up every year, it's Turo Yano, every year, every year. <laughs> the immortal yeah, spanner in the works. There's a fun fact with that. Uh, I think it's, if I remember correctly, the stat, this is a stat that I usually try and remember. And it's to do with Yano and Suzuki. 
They've faced each other, I believe it's five times in the G1. Yano has won every single time. It's, it's crazy to think that he is literally... He would be... He's like that. If you looked on the western side of things, he's a more of a jobber type idea. But he gets wins. There was a tour, there was a tournament a couple of years ago where he got ten points, something like that. It's just like he shouldn't be getting that many points. He should be on like two or two or zero or four or something like that. But it just, it's 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 the fact that that's what I quite like about it is that you can watch it. If you watch a tournament like that, you don't want to kind of thinking. It's like when you watch. I say this, I'm going to say this because I support the other side. I'm perfect analogy to it. It's like when I watch Celtic play like St. Mirren or Hamilton Ackies or something like that. It's like, I'm going to beat them. I'm going to put up a fight. <laughs> you know, it's like, so it's the fact that you can watch this and think, right, he could win this. He could schoolboy him in that one. It's something else. And Scott, we did see that last year when it looked like John Moxley was going to run away with the tournament. And then he ran into Yano. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you look at the people Yano has managed to get the upset wins against in the week. I think that same tournament, uh, Naito's first match against Yano, and Yano managed through some confusion, managed to get the roll up and beat Naito. He's beaten Omega in the past, I believe, as well. I always think of him as like he's the New Japan equivalent of maybe a a Santino. Because we all remember where we were when it looked like Santino would win the Royal Rumble. And there were some of us who were at the time who thought, actually, I want to see Santino win this rumble or when it looked like Santino could beat Daniel Bryan. I think there are like sections of the New Japan audience that wouldn't mind if Yano actually won because through these upset wins, even though he's never won one of these tournaments, he's actually racking himself a decent like record when you actually look back at it. And we said about the, the stats and that, I think it's, again, the sport, real sport aspect of it that allows for these so, so many interesting like statistics and stats. I think I like Yano already, thanks Scott. You're welcome. Oh, he's, your ty- he's, your, he's your type of wrestler, Kwaku. He just yeah, that d- d- no, thank you, Scott. I think I do like him now. Yano won G1 all the time. The campaign yeah. starts now. To put it in perspective, right, we talk about uh, New Japan, the current eras, where it's all about long, hard-hitting matches or that type of stuff, or even short, hard-hitting matches. Yano, in the year that he got 10 points, it was 2016, the year that Kenny Omega won it. Yano's longest match was with Kenny Omega which lasted 9 minutes and 5 seconds. <laughs> Kenny Omega won that tournament in the final in 26 minutes. <laughs> he had a 28-minute match with, with Naito, Kenny Omega, but nope, had that 9-minute classic with Yano. It's always remembered, you know? You <laughs> uh, don't really need long matches when it comes to Yano because they'll always be memorable. I mean, when me and Grant looked back at this year's New Japan Cup, one of the matches we loved talking about was the highly unique match between Hiromu and Yano from the second round, which involved an elevator coming into play. And so, like, the thing with Yano, he doesn't need to go, like, long, hard-hitting matches to be memorable. And that's the best thing about him. Mm-hmm. That same year, he also beat Shibata in one minute and, zero, and five seconds. <laughs> Jesus. That's Shibata Kwaku, not Shibata. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Speaking of which, I've got your batter in the, in the oven right now as we speak. Magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, Grant, what the 2012, they threw another curveball into the G1 and thought, the, let's add the stakes to this one and let's introduce what has now become synonymous with the tournament kind of is that Tokyo Dome shot for with the winner of the G1 getting a shot at the IWGP World title in the main event of the next year's Wrestle Kingdom at the Tokyo Dome added stakes and it just makes it feel so much more bigger the fact that you're actually you know competing for something 
kind of like what the Royal Rumble or like something like Money in the Bank does in WWE. Yeah, I absolutely love that aspect of it. And what I love as well is that between then and the Dome, they have to defend that contract as well, which adds that little bit of an extra stipulation. Like when you look over the years, generally there's two, in some cases there have even been three defences, usually at the likes of Destruction and King of Pro Wrestling events. And it just make it builds even more story. It's like you've won the tournament, you've had to defend that honour, and now you're finally getting your shot in the dome. Well, what I find quite interesting actually about that grant is the fact that since 2012, even though they've got that stipulation, the person who wins the G1 has never lost that shot. Which is, you would expect at least one occasion, like we've seen them with the past in WWE with Money in the Bank, that that would kind of flip a wee bit. You would, you would possibly expect that, but then at the same time, when you look at this, except being pretty much there's like seven winners there, the winners are all pretty much the best of the best. Okada twice, you've got Omega, Naito, Tanahashi, Ibushi. Good luck trying to get that away from them. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm, I'm looking back on the you know defences of it, and I think it's been mostly two, bar two occasions it was at and Tetsuya Naito in 2017 he only defended it once against Tomohiro Ishii at the King of Pro Wrestling and Naito again in 2013 defended it three times twice against Masato Tanaka and Takahashi so three, uh, it's mostly two as you, can, as you say Grant and it's usually quite the same names that come up you know but it, it's, it's big it's, it does create something Scott it creates a bit of doubt to find things it's like that you've won the big fi- the big G1 tournament you've won the best of the best thing but can you defend it can you actually make it well it's a bit different than what we've kind of seen sometimes in the past with WWE where somebody's won the Royal Rumble but they found some sort of random reason to have the match you know kind of like 2000s for example where they found out that the Rock's feet had actually touched the floor first and the big show should have been won the Rumble you know this is just a case of I'm going to show that I was still the best Mm-hmm. So anything about like having to defend uh, your title here, even though obviously even if you win you can obviously lose and it's the people you've lost against you have to defend it against. It's funny that like I went through this month long tournament to win this opportunity and yet I now I still have to prove that I earned it by defending it even more and it is good that they have this shot because like you go through a tournament as grueling as this, you want something at the end to fight for and I think what you said about how there's not been a it hasn't the person hasn't lost their title shot yet when defending it and I think that's the intrigue of it is that they've been doing this for a number of years now people are kind of waiting for that one thing like surely this is the year maybe they're going to change things that make you think it's this person going to Wrestle Kingdom and then kind of pull the wheel or get from this and like surprise actually it's this person who's going to get the title shot uh, with Naito's one his 2013 one is the most unique because one of his defences against Tanaka he, it was also Tanaka's uh, never open weight title that was on the line and uh, yeah, uh, so Naito walked in a wrestle game that year as an ever openweight champion as well. That was still fairly new at the time. And when he beat Takahashi, that was basically the culmination of their breakup as a tag team. So it was kind of Naito tying up loose ends on his way to, to Wrestle Kingdom. And the most important thing about it is it basically gives whoever won it something to do rather than just waiting about until Wrestle Kingdom. I'm right in saying as well. That one you mentioned with the Naito one, that was the year of... Was that the year that they kind of controversially pulled them from the main event? Mm-hmm. 
yeah, this is uh, back when Faith Naito won, and uh, he wasn't quite over yet as he as he would go on to be in later years. Mm-hmm. And then they put in uh, Tanahashi versus Nakamura for the IWGP Intercontinental Championship in, in its place. So that's how we've kind of had many people's eyes the long series which accumulate, accumulated in this year's Wrestle Kingdom when uh, Naito won the double gold dash. It says the double gold dash. I always get the name wrong, but I always call it the gold double dash or something like that. <laughs> uh, this year's Wrestle Kingdom. Uh, Grant, all, as I said, I did mention the fact that they've never, whoever's defended it before, Wrestle Kingdom has never lost it. Another interesting stat that I, I, I found quite intriguing when I look back on it is that of all the guys who have won the Tokyo Dome shot with winning the G1, only one of them has successfully cashed in the shot, and that was Tanahashi in 2018 with defeated Kenny Omega in what would turn out to be Kenny Omega's last match in New Japan before joining AEW. This may be a controversial theory in my opinion, but I'm just going to put it out to you. Do you think the fact that it's never, it's only once been successfully cashed in, does that potentially dilute the idea of winning it? Or does it fall back to what you say about the defences that it adds a wee bit more intrigue that you kind of, you're not always thinking that they're going to win the shot, like we maybe saw in the very early days of Money in the Bank? I think it adds to the intrigue. It's, it's kind of like the, it's the fact that we've never had anyone lose their, their their title shot but pretty much everyone bar one and Tanahashi being the only one to win it is a pretty big deal because of his record in the company but it does mean it's like it's it's going to give people that incentive it's like yeah everyone's lost it but one person did I want to get I want to be the next person to do that set an even bigger bigger bar on things mm-hmm. Scott what's your thought on that on that question what do you think about the fact that only the one person has ever successfully cashed it it's weird because, like as I said, we just talked about everything the briefcase winner has to go through in order to keep that shot and get to Wrestle Kingdom in the first place. And then for them to get there and not win, more than not, it seems strange, especially if you're not a full-time watcher of New Japan. I mean, Naito, both of his losses kind of played into an overall story. And uh, the Bushi one, most recently this year, could possibly really be uh, still part of a larger thing we haven't seen the payoff to yet. But it is strange that only one person is one because like Wrestle Kingdom is basically their version of WrestleMania. And like it's not unusual for the world champion or the WWE champion to retain in the main event of WrestleMania. But like you always expect it to be a title change in the main event because that's a bigger moment. The new champion celebrates as the big show of the year closes. So it's mm-hmm. weird and I think and partly I wouldn't even know if Tan actually would have won successfully had Omega been leaving because he dropped it fairly quickly afterwards. So I think when Tashi did win it, I don't think they knew yet that Kenny Omega was leaving. And I remember that year in particular, uh, Tashi beat Ibushi, who was going to win the next year. And everybody wanted Ibushi to win because that would mean Omega and Ibushi at Wrestle Kingdom, which both of them had said they wanted to happen. Grant Scott brings up an interesting point when talking about Kenny Omega's defeat to Tanahashi in 2018. There's a good chance that, if Ke- well, according to what's been mentioned in media reports in the two years since then, that if Kenny Omega wasn't leaving, and Kenny Omega probably would have won that, which would have meant that we would have had none of the G1 winners actually successfully cashing in. You think if, if that was a scenario, that would keep you a lot of on an edge because you'd be, you'd, be, you'd be constantly thinking who's going to be the first, who's going to be that history maker that, that does the, the, the double-double? Yeah, because I think like, if Omega was still there, I think they were going to 
keep firing him to the moon. I think there was going to be some big things that still to come out of that. But he had decided, no, he's, he's done what he wanted. He's done everything that he planned on and he left. And it, it does leave that big what if question mark. Like, would we still have the double gold dash and stuff like that if Omega was still there? Mm-hmm. I think it was going to be some sort of lot. I think, I think Okada was going to beat him again. I'm sure that was what the story was going to be from what I've heard. And I think Jay White was kind of just the, he was a go-between as well. Because they didn't want to do Tanahashi Okada again. Because it was going to be face versus face as well. So I think that's maybe where they went the either Jay White. Uh, Scott, you mentioned about Kota Bushi. I don't know if this is just my westernized wrestling brain going in there, but I'm still annoyed that he didn't win this, win the title. I'm so, I'm so annoyed he didn't win that double gold dash because I think that if you, I, I'm this whole faith idea that if you win, they need to have somebody get that whole big win because you feel like they go through all that, that tournament, you get to that climax, then if they don't win it, you're just kind of like, Ugh. especially with that double gold dash because he lost, he lost on night one, and then you're kind of just like. Oh well, then he's going to be in the third and fourth match that nobody really cares about. So, mm-hmm. then what's the point? Yeah, and then he did lose to Jay White the following night as well. So he was the, out of the four, he was the one to go zero and two uh, that night or that weekend. And I remember being ran on one of the first episodes of East Meets West. I was so confident that Bushi was going to walk out with both belts, and Grant Burke correctly predicted uh, Naito. And when you look back at Naito's story, it makes all the sense in the world for him to come out with both belts. And yeah, probably in hindsight, him beating Okada makes more sense because it's Okada that's denied him before. Last two times he's challenged the title at Wrestle Kingdom and it was Okada who said maybe he wasn't ready for the main event of the Tokyo Dome. But mm. Barmy just would have liked, even if it was just fight for a day, like he beats Okada on night one and maybe loses to Nitro the second night. At least he's got that moment where he can hold the belt and that you can then chase it back again, like I hold on, I finally achieved what I wanted, but it was taken away far too quickly. And like I said, I think it, with everything that's going on in the world right now, and how New Japan had to kind of scramble when they came back, I think there's still a payoff to come, like with Ibushi, because I don't think he's going to be in the side team with Tanashi for longer. He's going to be back in the main event sooner rather than later. I remember looking back, obviously, at the time, I remember being annoyed that Kenny Omega didn't win. And- the, the Missile Kingdom 11 but obviously now with the idea of hindsight they might not have had that whole series of matches you know or things might have been a bit different and all so I can kind of understand that looking back on it now quick question to you both before we take a break here how long do you think it will be until somebody again successfully cashes in the G1 briefcase shot do you think it's something we'll see pretty soon or do you think it may be something may have to wait a couple of years, a few years for Grant, what do you think? I reckon it's going to happen. If the G1 happens this year, I reckon whoever wins it is going to win at the Dome. I've got a feeling about that this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Uh, Scott, what about you? I'm not so sure. So sure. I think we might wait a couple of years before it happens again. Because again, we don't even know if it's going to happen this year. But if it does happen this year, then if Evil walks into the Tokyo Dome with both belts and still a champion by then, uh, then they might win but I think maybe, maybe if not this year then 2021 maybe is the earliest we'll see someone actually win uh, the twi- whoever wins the 2021 G1 Climax and then go on a cash in successfully because they have to have another one sooner around there because you actually look at it it's weird that nobody is actually won it successfully because with the exception of Abushi everybody who has won the G- G1 briefcase 
even though they didn't win at WrestleMania, has went on to be champion at some point. And Ibushi just seems like the odd man out right now. I feel like his time's coming. It's just when it's going to be the when the time does eventually come. As you say, he was putting that tag team with Tanahashi, and then they were they recently just lost the titles as well. So where he's going to go is, is hard to judge, especially as you said during this current time with the the COVID nineteen pandemic. We don't really know what's going to ha- how things are going to transition. Where they're going to wait for bigger crowds, but we'll see as things goes. But that has been the first half of our show where we've talked a lot about the history of the tournament and it's more of its concepts. When we come back in, in the second half. We're going to talk about more about the wrestlers and actually the performances of those being in the G1. So we're actually going to each talk about our MVP of the tournament's history. We're going to be talking about our breakout performance from one wrestler in one particular year, which should be interesting, some interesting ones in there. And we're also going to be talking about our favourite matches from G1 Climax history. But before we get into that, here's a short break. And just in case you didn't quite understand the rules of the G1 for what we talked about in the first one. Here is the full explanation that was given out. We'll see you in a bit. Hello, I am the GOAT, David Campbell, and I would like to invite you, the listener, to my new show over at Eat Sleep Suplex Retweets YouTube channel. And that show is The Conspiracy Theory, where once a month, I will be taking a look at all the rumours and speculation in the world of professional wrestling and giving the most important opinion on the matter. My opinion. Yes, that's right. Head over to Suplex Retweet's YouTube channel. Like, share and subscribe where you'll get a lot of other great content over there such as the new hit show, Quiz Showdown. But don't forget, check out my new show, The Conspiracy Theory, on Suplex Retweet's YouTube channel. Farewell, friends. New Japan Pro Wrestling's G1, or Grade 1 Climax, is a tournament held by NJPW every year. And although it had taken place as a single elimination tournament, where a competitor is eliminated from the tournament upon defeat, the G1 Climax is usually and currently held as a round-robin tournament, with winners from two blocks wrestling in the final to decide the winner of that year's tournament. In its current format, the tournament lasts around four weeks, The winner of each block is determined by a point system. Two points for a victory, one point for a draw, and zero points for a loss. New Japan has been holding an annual tournament since 1974 under various names such as the World League, the MSG League, the IWGP League, and now the current G1 name, which has been used since 1991. Although the winner of the first ever IWGP League was awarded a championship title, the tournament now grants the winner a chance to challenge for the IWGP Championship at NJPW's biggest show, Wrestle Kingdom. Since 2012, the winner of every G1 Climax has been granted a briefcase, similar to WWE's Money in the Bank briefcase, which symbolizes their title match opportunity at Wrestle Kingdom, and is often defended once or twice before the event. No previous holder of the briefcase has defended and lost, but it is mainly to give the holder something to do for the months leading up to Wrestle Kingdom. The G1 Climax is a huge thing in NJPW that it's normal for the IWGP Champion to compete in the tournament, where any losses they might receive can very well set up future title matches down the line. But if they win, 
It shows how dominant they are as a champion. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Welcome back to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. I'm Stephen Wilson and I'm joined by Grant Scott and Kwaku. And we are talking about the history of the G1 Climax in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Just there at the break, you heard the actual official rulings of how the actual tournament works. They say it's a very interesting and unique concept. It's something I definitely recommend if you've never done before, going back and watching some of them. In particular, the last few years of it from like 2016 to 2019, they've been absolute crackers. I've always said some good ones before that, but definitely those four in particular. Now, as I mentioned just before the break, we're going to talk a lot more about the actual wrestling performances from the G1 Climax, as we've mentioned in the first half. New Japan and then G1 in particular is a hard-hitting tournament over the space of a month. It's a lot about the endurance of the wrestlers and they actually have to wrestle a lot, but in that time, a lot of them put on some fantastic performances and we've had a lot of guys who you always know are going to do well in the G1. And that's where we're going to go first with our G1 MVPs of all time. I'm going to start with Grant in this one. Grant, who's going to be your G1 Climax MVP? My G1 Climax MVP is Tomohiro Ishii. Mm, that's a good choice. It is somebody I considered didn't really go with, you know. But talk about what he's done in this tournament over the years. And for me, especially, just even just using the last few years as an example, Ishii is consistently in some of the best matches in every tournament. He's he's always working well with whoever he's against. Um, good example being him v Shingo last year was absolutely unreal. He hits hard. Um, like even if you were to controversial opinion but Meltzer's ratings Ishii generally has the highest average rating out of any wrestler throughout the whole tournament he's very very solid very consistent in that regard mm-hmm. yeah definitely uh, Scott when I look at a guy like Ishii I always does he seems like a guy who maybe floats just under the radar of a lot of the guys who you talk about that top tier, the likes of your Okadas, your Naitos and your Tanahashi. But as Grant says, especially in this tournament, he's consistently solid and he consistently puts on great match after great match, regardless of who he's against. Yeah, I think from like 2016 onwards, uh, the most common thing I hear going into a G1 is people saying, I can't wait to see Ishii versus this person or this person because Ishii seems, usually that's his type of shine whenever a big tournament like this comes around he's always knocking out consistent performances and like he's beaten the champion in the tournament before I think he beat Kenny Omega in 2018 when Omega was the champion that earned him a title shot at uh, King of Pro Wrestling I believe it was uh, but he he seems to have fallen into this place of like the guy they call upon to be reliable to challenge for a title one of the top titles but never seems to win one he seems to be stuck in the never title scene for quite a long time and I think everyone's still waiting, like, oh, maybe this this will be easier, this will be easier. I would like to see him with one of the top titles, like, at some point, or at least in the next year or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm looking back just now on some of Ishii's past performances in the tournament, and it, 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 it's not exactly like, he seems to be like, he's a mid-table kind of guy, mid-block of anyone that he's in. It's just, he seems to be that guy who does help play a big part in getting a lot of the guys over in these matches and these big hard-hitting bouts that he's, he, he tends to be in quite consistently. Yeah, his ability to get others over 
is absolutely immense and also his in-ring time if you look at 2019 I think his shortest match was against Yano which was nine and a half minutes everything else was above that's a long Yano match he had like a nine and a half minute match with Yano 12 minutes with Taichi everything else was in excess of 18 minutes so it's a lot of in-ring time over the tournament as well from like 20 and a half minutes with Moxley which was phenomenal to watch him and Moxley I mean, just when you had that described before the tournament, you would you instantly thought these two are going to bar lumps of each other, especially you, Japan, John Mox. Because I think at this point, Mox hadn't found his feet fully yet, post WWE and AEW especially. As the months have went on since then, we've seen a lot more of the Moxley we've kind of we've got in New Japan. So I think Moxley, New Japan Moxley against a guy like Ishii and as we hopefully we'll see a lot more what we did see briefly the, before the pandemic he's matched with uh, Suzuki Moxley it's just it's, it seems that a match made in heaven is for styles yeah Moxley's hardcore hitting style goes perfectly well with Ishii's just straight up smash mouth hit as hard as you can it's Ishii's just he's built like a fridge he has no neck and he can just go through people hence why he's got that name the stone pitbull it is just a small pitbull that just cannot stop him once he gets moving and as uh, Scott Grant mentioned uh, his ratings in the tournament are consistently high from Meltzer and I also think as well that a lot of people tend to rate Ishii very highly when it comes to talking about top 10 wrestlers of the year which is crazy to think when you look at the fact that, as you mentioned he's barely he never seems to be out of that you know lower title you know feuds all the time he's never really fe- uh, got a shot with one of the big belts mm-hmm. it's strange because like the G1 usually when you look at the best matches in New Japan of any given year there's quite a few of them are from the G1 tournament and the last few years Ishii like, corrupts up in one or two of those and like so Grant said like when, they, when you first see him you see how like, he's one of the shorter competitors in New Japan but he's still one of the toughest if not the toughest because like you shouldn't like let your size fool you. Because like anybody who you may consider this guy could be like the toughest person in the room. Like when you've got a Makabe, Suzuki, uh, Katsuyo Shibata, and this past G1, John Moxley, they always go up against Ishii at some point. And you want to see them go up against Ishii because you know this is going to be a match where two guys just absolutely batter each other in true like strong style. No, it's a it's a fine choice, Grant. I think a lot of people would put him in the in their G1. You know. MVPs just for similar reasons. Uh, Scott, who are you going to go with? Now, I know this seems like an obvious pick, but I'm going to go with Okada because we actually look at it from the, the period that we've been talking about just before the break from 2012 onwards when the actual title shot at Wrestle Kingdom was on the line. Uh, Okada was the first person to win the G1 when that was on the line where he went on to face uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom 7. And so he's a two-time winner. In 2017, he had the story of almost his mental breakdown as he was coming off that long 700-plus day reign as as champion. And he still put in a great effort, but it just wasn't his year. He was still finding himself when he wasn't champion. And then every other year, he seems to, he is the champion going in. He's always the marked man, and he's always does like he's in such a great effort. Even though he's the champion, you think as champion he could still win it, and like you see the people who get upset wins against them you see him against Evil and, against Evil and Sonata I think Fale at one point even got an upset win over 
Okada in a G1 at one point. So you never know what's going to happen in one of Okada's matches. Like, mm-hmm. you had that 30-minute, nearly, you had the third part of him and uh, Kenny Omega, which we talked about in a previous show, continuing that rivalry. It's, even 2019, it looked like for a while he actually might win uh, the A block. So, like, Okada is, it seems like in the past few years, if any champion could went on and win the G1, uh, it looks like Okada could have been the guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Grant, Okada obviously is a, a choice that was bound to probably come up with a lot of people, even if it wasn't for one of us's suggestions. But you look at that 2012 made history, he was the youngest, uh, G, first, oh, sorry, he was one of the the, the youngest G1 climax winner all time, age of 24. He was the first guy to win the t- since uh, Hiroki Goto to win it at his first attempt. He just came back from his expedition in TNA, I believe, around about that time as well. The G1 effectively propelled. Okada to where he is today. Yeah, twenty twelve was the start of the start of the rainmaker. Really, the start of what what we now know as properly Okada, and he, it's undeniably a fantastic choice for an MVP. Because really, if you if you want to look at even just the twenty twelve onwards, it's hard to argue against him. He's got a consistent record, and yeah, he is always the marked man, which makes it even more interesting because everyone is always gunning for him. Mm-hmm. I think what Scott said kind of summed it up the fact that it's, it's quite obvious in the last few years especially the majority of the time he goes in there as the IWGP heavyweight champion there's not many tight, uh, tournaments in the last like five or six years that Okada's not champion going into it so I think it adds that extra incentive that the fact that as you mentioned in the first half of the show you beat the champion in this tournament you get yourself a shot at getting a championship opportunity between then and Wrestle Kingdom so to all the other guys in the block, they kind of they would obviously have. Uh, if I beat him as well, I could have a shot here. I could maybe get a shot at the Tokyo Dome as well. That's it. There's always that. There's always that. What if I can do this mentality? And I, it, it really like it. It brings guys going into the tournament, which you feel, yeah, maybe they're there to pad the numbers, but you put them in the ring with someone like Okada, you're going to get a great match out of them. Definitely on that one. And as you said, Scott is. He's a multiple-time winner as well, so that obviously puts you right in the contention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's one of the things about the idea of the believability of a con- somebody as a contender to win it, and sometimes you don't even consider that the champion could win it. You know that they're going to have like a strong showing, and like maybe lose to somebody who'll then they'll defend the title against later down the line. But like as I said, as as recent as the last year one, it kind of looked like he came very close to winning uh, the A block, which would have been. An, like it's one of the things like all people say that some of the guys may have built too strongly, but like he is really one of the better rest, best wrestlers in the world, and he a lot of people like you said they seem underdogs, but they have one of their best matches of the year or in the tournament against him. And what's interesting is his first G1 win is against Carl uh, Anderson in the final. I think Anderson was like the first, only the second ever guy Jean in the final since uh, Rick Rude in '92. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it was obviously, as I said, he was going to be one that came up in contention and it's very fitting that we've kind of put him in this uh, MVP category. As critical as I am of him at times as we were during that Kenny Omega Okada series show uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, now, considering we've not mentioned the likes of Naito, Tanahashi and Nakamura, I'm going to go a bit left field in my MVP. One of you have just recently mentioned them. It was the man that Scott just mentioned that Okada beat in the 2012 tournament. I'm going to go with Carl Anderson as my G1 MVP. Uh, Grant, what's your thoughts on 
you know, one half of the talking shop team, uh, <laughs> one half of the Good Brothers being an MVP of the G1. I can definitely agree with that. Yeah, like 2012, that fin- final between him and Okada, I've rewatched it multiple times, and it is an absolute stunning match. And it's it's one of those things that, if, if you're only familiar with Carol Anderson from his more recent stuff with WWE, you're like, wait, this is the same guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and Scott is Carl Anderson is you. We've watched quite a lot of him recently in WWE over the years. Now in TNA and probably going to be in New Japan once things go back. A lot of people associate him more as a tag team wrestler, but when you look at his single record, especially in the G1, he's always been up there at every single tournament. And see, as we said, he was in the final. As you stole my stat on him being the f- the first uh, foreign finalist since Rick Rude. Thanks for that. Uh, I didn't know you were going to pick him. That's true enough. I'll give you the benefit. But he is like like Ishii. He's a guy who's always very high up in the rankings. He's always very close every tournament he's been in. Yeah, definitely. And like he kind of fell into this kind of role as a tag wrestler, like especially when he teamed thirteen with girls as the heavyweight tag team in Bullet Club for a while. And then WWE, they weren't kind of allowed to do stuff on their own. Him and girls are kind of just always together. And in recent history, uh, on their podcast, Carl Anson has said that uh, they will stick as a tag team, but every now and then they will try and go out and try single efforts again. And I think hopefully that means that Carl Anson will get another run in the G1 kind of like this, because you watch him, like, because even before he's, he's matched Okada, he, he had been a big tag wrestler, like, of uh, Giant Bernard, who was a uh, Tensire Albert in the WWE. So he can balance between the two singles and uh, singles and tag team wrestling, and like again, it's like night and day seeing him here to how he was in WWE. And, you know, maybe if Carl Anderson can't do it, maybe one year, maybe Chad Tuvad can get the job done. <laughs> maybe they can, st- they can chuck Sex Ferguson in there as well. Who knows? Uh, Grant, I know we've mentioned his 2012 tournament because obviously got to the final with faced Okada, but. One of the tournaments that kind of stands out to me on him, Carl Anderson, it was his performance in 2015, where he took on the likes of Nakamura and your pick Ishii in some fantastic matches, and he got a very respectable six wins out of nine that time. So he's all he seems he's when his tag teams, as Scott mentioned, he was with Giant Bernard and then he was with uh, Gallows and that one. He's the he seems to always be the technical wrestler who's thrown in with the big guy, but it works and he. When he put him in there by himself, he can do it. I say those two ma- the matches with Nakamura and Ishii that year, particularly as well, the one in Okada, but also he's won the year before with his good brother AJ Styles as well. Oh, him and Styles was absolutely fantastic. That was that's an absolute brilliant match. But 2015, I mean, you look at Block B, and his equal points we go to the only two above him are Nakamura and Okada with 14 points each. I mean, that's some pretty solid company up the top of that pile there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he beat Nakamura in that aforementioned match as well. So it just shows what he was doing. But you got to credit a man in this one who not only had such a great G1 history, but one of the only men, along with Mr. Uh, Gallows, to have had his final WWE match in the main event of WrestleMania. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and he also main evented the uh, Talking Shop Mania as well. So what a year for Carl Anderson, that's for sure, <laughs> in this difficult year. So that has been our MVPs. You see some left field ones, some a few of us there, but definitely wins some good choices all round. We're now going to go to our breakout one-sick performance of, of the tournament. Now, this is a, a performance from a wrestler, maybe not winning it, maybe do winning it, who knows, who have 
kind of came from left field in a way to produce an absolute fantastic performance that's remembered and helps propel them. Scott, I'm going to start with you. What's your breakout performance in G1 history? I'm trying to think because really it's only been the last few years that I've started properly following the G1, like the tournaments as a whole. And I know, like, obviously people knew how good he was before this. But, uh, I'm going to go with Will Ospreay's run in 2019 because, like, doing research for this show, I looked back at the 2019 G1 and looked just how stacked that tournament was. Not only match-wise, but just the star quality of it. I think it's actually one of the more stacked ones in recent years, and that's saying something we actually look back. I think we Osprey was like we already knew how good he was, but he'd been in the junior division and the realm of Japan. He hadn't actually had that chance to be in the main event scene as much in the heavyweights because he had like those matches with Okada on like, the anniversary show. But then even then, we seen like oh yeah, all it's obvious that the heavyweight champion is going to be the junior heavyweight champion. But then he goes into the G1 in 2019 after like one of the best years he's been he was having like he went for the best of Super Juniors won it came junior at champion then decided you know what I want into G1 as well he had great two of the best matches of that year were him versus Okada and him versus Ibushi you know he him and Ar- even him versus Lance Archer was better than a lot of people thought it would be going into even managed to beat Hiroshi Tanahashi the ace and defending champion of the G1 as he won it the previous year. So I think uh, it was just another like, safe stamp in the, to say that Will Osprey is basically one of the best wrestlers in the world, regardless of like division. Yeah. Uh, Grant, a lot of wrestlers in history in the G1 have came into it looking great beforehand or on a great run, but I don't think there's been many who came into a G1 tournament as hot as Will Osprey did last year. Yeah, last year you had two juniors pretty much moving up to the heavyweight at the same time Osprey and Shingo Takagi who were both really hot after that incredible final they had in the best of super juniors and I mean it really like Osprey that year he was in pretty much every tournament he was like is there a tournament yeah sure put me in for it guys doesn't matter the weight throw me into it that's pretty much what Osprey was like and he did have an absolute breakout performance setting himself in amongst the heavyweights at that point mm-hmm. that can't be denied and we look at block A that year that block A was so tight that year because last year because we had Abushi and Okada were ahead on 14 points but we had was it 8 7 sorry 7 other guys on 8 points throughout that that block so it just show, and Will Ospreay in the rankings ends up second bottom so it just shows how competitive it was but I grant as Scott said some of those matches he had last year as well and this was his kind of ascension to heavyweight status where he was less reliant on being the Will Osprey, what we'd seen years before, the high flying, the flippy stuff and all that type of stuff. He was a lot he's a lot more chiselled as he showed in twenty nineteen. Yeah, that's you could see like the like the change in his physique when you look at him from like just going from like twenty eighteen to twenty nineteen. He was bulking up, he wanted to hit that hundred kilos and he was pretty damn close to it at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's, and uh, and Scott, it just shows like as we mentioned in the first half of the show, you throw a, a junior heavyweight into a tournament and they can cause a bit of disruption and chaos and that's what we kind of got with these two, not just Osprey last year, but with Shingo as well as Grant said. Yeah, I think with Shingo it was more of a matter of time because you look at Shingo, he didn't automatically scream uh, Junior was kind of on that line between Junior and Heavyweight but Osprey, like because of his, his style of wrestling up until that point we, we weren't sure when, when he was eventually going to go up and like you said, like he became, 
he relied on more power moves like the Stormbreaker started becoming his, uh, his like match ending move. And what's interesting is that you look at how great a run he had when he said, oh, he finished like second and bottom. And he went in there as the junior heavyweight champion. And you just think of how good a run he could have when he goes in there now as a fully fledged heavyweight as he is now having moved up after dropping the junior title to Hiromu. And like, I, I guarantee in a couple in a couple of years time, uh, Will Ospreay is going to be in like the G1 final, and like I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up he came out with the briefcase. I think he would have been a good shout this year if it wasn't for the pandemic. Obviously, he's one of those guys who's stuck in the stuck in the UK, so he would have been a fantastic shout this year. But no, definitely a great performance and one merited of being one of the breakout ones. Grant, who are you going to go with as your break was your breakout performance of G1 history? I had two in mind. Um, the one that I'm, the one that I'm not going to use was actually because you've already used him as your MVP was going to be Carl Anderson in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that I'm choosing is going back to 2018 when we had that particularly stacked B block, and I'm going with Zach Saber Jr. Very very interesting, Zach Saber Jr. Who obviously we talked about Will Osprey coming in hot after winning the Super Juniors last year. Zack Sabre Jr. won the U Japan Cup in 2018, if I remember rightly as well. He did. He absolutely had an, an absolute belter in the New Japan Cup. And and when you look at it, tied on points with Omega, Ibushi and Naito in Block B, Sabre was a spoiler. He was there to cause the damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Scott, we mentioned in the first half of the, the show how um, Yano was the spoiler in a more comedic fashion, but Sable Jr. with that technical style is a completely different style of a guy who can go in there and cause damage and I think I think he was helped as well just by as Grant said how stacked the block B was for him that year and some of the opponents he was facing and some of the ups the wins he got to stir the pot yeah definitely because like he said he's going in there as that year's New Japan Cup winner so like he's taking a hell of a lot more seriously with that going into his tournament and like he said he won all those matches with submission in the New Japan Cup but then he adds going in the tournament the Zack driver, yeah, the Virginia Radiation and the Michinoku driver, uh, given on to him by Takamichi Noku, who was his corner man at the time. So basically the idea of like that you know, I have like a million ways to tap you out, but if I wanted to I could also pin you. So it makes him look like the most dangerous guy going into that tournament. And I even watched back his match with uh, Kenny Omega from that tournament not too long ago. And like you look at the the match the way the meta counters that Sajim Junior has for Kenny Omega and the idea of, like Believably, he could have beaten Omega at that time, and like Kenny Omega had to even win by a, kind of a roll-up almost to, in order to put Zack Sabre Jr. That was a stamp of like just how dangerous, how much of a threat to the top guy Zack Sabre Jr. could be. Mm-hmm. And a great example of this tournament was one particular match. Talking about Zack Sabre Jr. is a match that makes WWE fans quite sad, uh, given what we could have saw. And the Cruiserweight Classic final that we never got, the match between him and Kota Ibushi went on for 23 minutes. And say, we could have thought that could have that was meant to be the Cruiserweight Classic final that year. Yeah, the, the, the two of them have such a storied history with each other between the Cruiserweight Classic and their matches in New Japan, like multiple meetings, New Japan Cup. That there's just something about, it. and even the, the constant antagonisation of Saber to Ibushi right now with with dangerous techers. It's he's he's got that. He's, it's just that they're a perfect combo for each other. Um, there really is one of the best combos I've ever seen in the ring. He's he's a guy. He's like a mar, he's a marmite wrestler in my opinion. You either like him or you don't. You know, his style doesn't suit everybody, but 
if if you're a if you're a purist and you really like that technical style of wrestling, he is like porn on a TV. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely one of one of the best for that. <laughs> the thing with Saber is it's, it's weird. Like it doesn't matter how good or how bad of a tournament he has, he can still be a highlight because like he goes from having this good a year in 2018, and then his whole story 2019 was maybe he was too arrogant and he kept losing. And then you talk about the backstage stuff, like post-match comments. It's almost like he's documenting the slow unraveling of, of Saxe Virginia. He's going more and more mental and just screaming and bawling about bloody Boris Johnson. <laughs> I would have liked to. He would have liked the intro to the show. Loves <laughs> <laughs> a bit of Tony Bash and Zach, you know. <laughs> but no, he's a he's a he's a fine choice. You see, I I've, I remember watching the Cruiserweight Classic and. You know, I'd seen bits of them at that time. I wasn't familiar with. I wasn't really familiar with Bushi too much at that point, but they did sell me on. I was sold on it, you know. And having he had a very good match in that tournament in the semis with Grand Metal. Was it Grand, uh, Grand Metallic? He had a very good match, you know. Metallic deserves so much more. I was really glad that he got an IC title shot the other week, but that's a completely different story altogether. Zack Sabre Jr. is a fantastic. That's a great breakout performance he had that particular year. Now, my breakout performance might surprise a lot of people, given how many points he got in the tournament that he was in. We're going back to the 2019 G1 Climax, and I'm going to talk about the guy who got the least amount of points in the full tournament. He's a guy that's been mentioned already. It's Lance Archer. Scott, you're a man familiar with Lance Archer. He's part of your uh, fantasy team in the recent season of our draft. He's You've loved them and you've hated them both in the last three months. But you didn't mention... As a guy who, for so many years, was just seen as a tag wrestler, a lower mid-card wrestler, the 2019... The 2019 in general, and the G1 climate to be more exact, helped propel this guy in the latter years of his career to something to, to a top-tier star, near enough. Yeah, it was weird because he'd, he'd had a lot of success in Japan as a tag wrestler along with uh, David Boy Smith Jr. But like outside of that and his TNA and he runs, he really wasn't, he didn't accomplish that much. So people didn't really take him that seriously, I don't think. I think it's weird that that last year or so he had in Japan was seemingly his best and he still chose to lead to AEW. He had this performance in the, in the G1 and then he went on this catapulted him into then getting the US title run that he had. And then that match with Moxley that me and Grant covered. And then, yeah, that's then sent him off to AEW. And I think over the last year, people just realised just how good Lance Archer can be as a face. And it's a shame that he didn't stick around much longer because, like, he could be, like, a throwback to like, the old, like, gaijin, like, monsters of the past. Come in and just, like, terrorising everybody. Mm-hmm. Grant, it's amazing. I still think it's amazing that I've just praised Lance Hoyt. But I have. <laughs> Just it's um, six points, lost six matches, but Scott highlighted that he, he had that match with Osprey the very first night of the tournament, and he turned a few heads, turned a lot of heads with that performance. Yes, he did because I walked into that thinking, oh boy, another Lance Archer match, can't wait for this. Oh well, here we go, and I was like, wait a minute, this is brilliant. He actually had a, a really it was a proper standout performance it really to me I enjoyed him as a, a tag wrestler but I never got the, I never got the singles hype until that match it finally clicked for me mm-hmm. yeah Scott obviously you, you talked about you could have been a, a throwback heel in that, in that aspect of him but 
if you look at the short amount of stuff that he's done since showing up in AEW, I mean, he's now got Jake the Snake Roberts as his manager, you know. What an ascent in the space of 12 months to this guy. As Grant said, it was just a, oh, it's him. He's that guy. He's the one guy we don't want to see in the tournament, you know. He was in, a, he was in that blooming, he was in that block A where Abushi, Okada, Osprey, Sabre Jr., Kenta, Tanahashi last year. But a year on, he's one of the guys in that block who is making waves. I mean, he, he, he's, he's a, he, come, he threw a guy through the ceiling the other week. <laughs> yeah, it was weird because he, he just felt like such a lower level member of Suzuki Gun for a long time. And then he finally had this breakout moment. And yeah, like, he believably coming to AEW, he could have just walked in and won this brand new title. I, th- I had so much faith in him that I put him in my team, but that didn't quite work out. But yeah, it's weird. It's like, I don't think people realised until like maybe that Osprey match that like, how agile he is for a big guy because we've seen him recently do that like you know version variation of old school but then does the moonsault so i think and like this he's he's running he's he's 40 odd i think at the moment or he's getting up there so like at this time he's he's still having the best race career yeah and if he were a lot of people say oh i'm winding down he's still going full belt and having like some of his best matches and it kind of fills into what i mentioned in the first half of the like you don't need to win a g1 to make it to to do great things. I mean, he was he finished bottom of the group, you know. But it just shows what it can do for you just to have one great performance or maybe two great performances in your nine matches. That's a couple a couple of, a couple of matches can be the make or break difference in the Scott. He's he's forty three and he's still that agile. It's pretty mm-hmm. damn impressive. Six foot eight. It's amazing that it, well, he's forty-two last. If you look last year, forty-two. It's amazing that at that age of forty-two, he had his best year in professional wrestling, and he could go on to have a good two, three or four years in AEW. Probably the way he's going now, he's, he's just he just seems to have that. Mm-hmm. He, they maybe chucked him too early at that tournament, and then to be fed to Cody in the final. But since then, he's kind of targeted all the likes of Joey Janela, Sonny Kiss, and that type of stuff. And he, once he kind of starts building himself back up, that he could end up being a very, very uh, viable candidate for any of those two main titles. But no, I was the same as you, Grant. I thought Lance Archer was bored to tell it to me. But I watched that match with Osprey, and I thought, this guy could be great. And what, his, match with, his match with Moxley at the Wrestle Kingdom was so fun. It was just a fun watch, you know. And that's why I've went for him as my breakout performance. Amazing that we actually we have actually all we've all we've picked the bottom three of Group A from last year's tournament from Block A. Saber <laughs> Junior, Osprey, and Archer were the bottom three, so it's mental how that works out. But we're now going to go talk about the matches, and we're now as you may, you may know if you've watched Japan G1 Climax, that some of the best matches of the year come over this four-week period. So many great ones to choose from. A lot of people's matches of the year, the top tens good percentage of them come from the G1. Grant, what's your favourite G1 Climax match of all time? My favourite of all time, out of all the ones that I've watched, and I have watched a hell of a lot of them, um, only have to look back to last year, and that was Okada v Sanada. That's bold, I didn't didn't expect that one to come. Uh, Sanada is probably one of my favourite singles wrestlers going now. I'm really like, in the last year, I've really went all in on him and his match with Okada last year showcased exactly why I'm bigging him yeah it went nearly half an hour which was something that I think I don't think Sanada's ever went that long 
in a match. I mean, if you look back at his stats from last year, he had the match with Sabre Jr. lasted 21 minutes, and he's a match where Bushy lasted just under 20. But no, he, it was it. It felt like a break heat breakout tournament, I think, for Sanada because he'd been in a few before that, but he never really was seen as a viable contender. I don't think until last year he was maybe a lot of people thought he's in with a chance to do a decent number. I thought it was absolutely sound. The fact that it was 13 seconds short of the time limit, and this was in three years they had had seven matches. Okada had said, Sonada's never really my true rival until he can beat me. And they finally done it with less than less, only 13 seconds to go. I was shouting at the TV when he was going for the moonsault, get it done, fucking pin him. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and it's, it's, um, I feel that if the G1 happens this year, we were talking earlier about if we think someone would win the case and then win the belt uh, next year. And my dream fantasy booking would be that Sanada wins the G1 this year and takes both belts off evil. Mm. Interesting, interesting one. Um, Scott, what do you think of that one? Wasn't the, when Grant said he was going to talk about last year's tournament, it wasn't the match I was expecting, personally. But this yeah, is, I, think, is, I think the big thing about the... Uh, well, the Sonada win is like, yeah, it was the first time he'd ever actually beat Okada, and I think was your Sonada player role in Naito originally beating Okada for the title back in 2016, so like they've kind of been going back and forth since then Like, and Okada had always won and like then uh, Sonada got yet another title shot and this time it felt like yeah, now he could win because like if you were a fan of him before, then like, now he can finally beat Okada and is that thirty minute time limit that can be like the added bit of storytelling because like you said the time limit played so well into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what, was, what was there anything else was there anything in particular about the match Grant that kinda of stood out to? Was it that uh, that part of storytelling that you quite liked the whole you can't beat me until this happens idea? Dude, it was it was definitely the story. Um I mean yeah, technically other matches might be more technical or fast paced or high flying, but the overall story within this, the rivalry, it just felt right and I was just, I was completely suckered in, like absolutely sold on the idea that if Sanada can beat Okada here and it did lead on to like eventually another, uh, Sanada getting another shot at Okada further down the line and it's just the two of them have got really good chemistry and I could honestly, I could watch them go again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Grant mentioned about he would love to see Sanada now go in to win the G1 and face Evil at Wrestle, Wrestle Kingdom if the G1 happens this year. I see a lot of people online not as sold on as Sanada as Grant is. What's your thoughts on him? I, I mentioned uh, on my most recent episode of East Meets West that it feels like Sanada, like, he had all this momentum going into this year and then with the pandemic and that it felt like he's been one of the people most affected because like, he lost in his match at Wrestle Kingdom to Junior lost in a singles match to Jay White and then before and then he was used kind of to propel Evil in their semi-final match and so like I'm really hopeful that if they did have a G1 that would be the probably the one thing to help elevate him again and I think whether or not Evil's got the belt or not I can see a, a, a Sanada Evil match at Wrestle Kingdom one way or another yeah I think it's going to happen I think it's going to happen it's just whether it's for the belt but no it's a very interesting one Grant I wasn't expecting it but no it's a fine choice all round uh, Scott what's your favourite of all time G1 match uh, like I said I've been watching like trying to follow along the last few years of the G1 and 
it was a match that I watched at the time. It came towards the end of the tournament uh, after a long tournament, and I watched it just as a fan the first time. But then we talked about it on a show before, and that's when I probably looked at it from like different aspects of the storytelling and things like that. And so again, maybe it always went like it's hard not to be one of the best matches when you've got two of the best wrestlers in the world in it. And it's Okada versus Omega from 2017, their third meeting in the 2017. And it was just the added like I mentioned before the time limit. That again played into it here because Omega had just been unable to beat Okada in 60 minutes. And they were saying like at the end of this grand tournament where they're already going into it not 100%, he has to try and beat him in 30. And like, it wasn't enough for Omega just to like get through the tournament and win it and get another shot at Okada. He said, one of my two goals is to beat you, Okada, to get to the final and then beat, hopefully beat Ibushi on the way there and then finally getting the title. And like, it's one of the few G1 matches that a story probably went into it and how that story was elevated through the use of the tournament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Grant Scott mentioned it, obviously. We mentioned it in the show a few weeks ago where we talked about the series of matches between these two wrestlers. It was bound that one of the three of us was going to pick it, you know. It's one of the most storied, you know, match series in New Japan history and its place in the tournament, as we mentioned at the time, was a bit different because there was a lot of different permutations to it. The fact that it was in the tournament, not just a standardised title match. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the fact that there's not a title match, you would think, takes the pressure off Okada. He's like, this title's not on the line here. I've already beat him twice, even if he beats me here. I get it, but they went at it as if the title was in the line and Okada's tournament if you look at the matches that he had last at that point almost every match was over 20 minutes he had a 30 minute draw with Suzuki his body must have been feeling it by that point and they still they were just incredible to watch mm-hmm. yeah I mean yeah Scott obviously Grant mentioned about Okada having great chemistry with Sonada but his chemistry with Kenny Omega was off the charts. All the four meetings, again, like I said, we, we, we gushed about them so much in 90 minutes when we talked about the series, but yeah. it's, it's it came so late on in the tournament, as you mentioned as well. There was a lot riding on the match as well, it was, even though the title wasn't on the line, as we said. Yeah, I think it was more of a pride thing on Omega's part, and it, it's funny the similarities with this match and uh, Grant's pick, and uh, it's somebody that Okada's already beaten uh, multiple times going into it it's basically so guys like I don't need to beat you you need to beat me and it was the first time that Kenny Omega managed to hit his finisher the one winged angel on Okada and it was showing that that was the deciding factor and like because he'd been going for it multiple times during the other two matches and he finally did it and like it's just like it's just their match one of the biggest takeaways in their feuds that I don't think a lot of people talk about I mentioned it on that show is the fact that the idea of protecting finishers I know like Kenny Omega hits like 20 million knees a match, but like yeah, the one winged angel and the Rainmaker were so protective of that food that it took three matches into the series for Kenny Omega to even hit the one winged angel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the one winged angel was so perfectly protected in that series of time. And uh, Grant, Dave Meltzer classed this as the best G1 of all time. You think matches like this, the fact that this wasn't a final, just sums up again why people would think that? Yeah, I mean, you you just even just throw that one match out there from that tournament, you're like, oh, that's the best match of the tournament, and you're saying that this is the best one that they've done. You've got a hell of a hell of a bar set there, and it's it's 
it's just whether you look at it in the context of the G1 that year, the whole decade, it's a match that's going to be high up in people's lists. It was just incredible. I see, Grant, you mentioned you said there that this kit, the guys kind of set a bar. Well, my best G1 match of all time, I think, top that one, you know, and raised the bar again. My pick is the final of the 2017 G1 Climax, Kenny Omega versus Tetsuya Naito. What's your thoughts on that one, Grant? Absolutely brilliant match. And it, I mean, that's it, like Naito and Kenny do have that's what I love Japan's really good at tying these stories with people together even if they don't fight each other for months a year there's still some sort of long term story in there and the two of them did put in an absolute banger in the final mm-hmm. oh yeah it was it was absolutely class it was I'd kind of faded in and started fading in and out to you Japan around about this time started falling a bit more following the whole Omega Okada at the Wrestle Kingdom that year so this was kind of the first one I kind of kept an eye on it but that as a final I mean, it kind of had a lot of great aspects to it and I think Scott what was your thoughts on this match of the final obviously your pick of the match came just before it mm-hmm. how much did, 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 did you think of the final obviously it wasn't your favourite match of the tournament but <laughs> yeah I, I think again as I said watching it back in the story is what elevated the match of Okada for me but like you think of the, the physical that match had been and then, like, we just again missed out on Abushi versus Rest Omega with Naito winning the B block. And basically, so then, with like less than 24 hours to prepare, Omega's going to then this match against Naito. And it's weird because, like, some of the more newer fans are following along with Kenny Omega, and he's him and the elite are kind of the appeal of New Japan that gets them in the door. And, like, seeing Omega going through the journey he's been through, it looked like he was set to win back to back years. And then Naito comes into it. I think it's just around that time that people who maybe hadn't watched it, been watching it that long suddenly start to realise the story of Naito and like his ascension because in the year previous he'd become probably one of the most popular people in Japan at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think another an aspect for it that me I quite liked is we had the we factor in the Kenny Omega part of it. He had that match with Okada at the Wrestle Kingdom, which at the time was proclaimed to be the best match of all time. Everybody was raving about it. He had just finally beaten Okada the night before to get into the G1 final. I thought it was a foregone conclusion that Kenny Omega was winning this and becoming the first, winning its two tight years in a row and going on to face Okada again at Wrestle Kingdom to potentially win the title. So I think the fact that they flung a, a curveball into it and gave the win to Naito, for me, a fan of the, uh, uh, wrestling, you know, not a well-rounded fan of New Japan at that point in time. Not really knowing too much about Naito, other than he kind of showed up in TNA a couple of times. Was thinking, this is bold. Yeah, I mean, that's that's when, when you like first start watching New Japan, if you've only been used to Western stuff, they'll throw things out at you and you're like, are you sure this is a wise idea? This doesn't seem like the right thing. And the curveballs actually turn out to play out pretty well. I would have thought Omega, I, I had the feeling Omega was going to win it get it back to back and I mean even when he won it the year before he was the first foreign G1 winner so it would have been an even bigger deal if he'd done it two years back to back it would have been something else and you talk about that you know when they kind of flung something in you're not too sure about I think that's what people are currently thinking about Evil's title win and the recent times are like yes hopefully this turns out well it doesn't <laughs> it, we're, we're very sceptical at this point but we'll, we'll give it the benefit of the doubt Uh Scott, I mean, these guys, they went at it for nearly 35 minutes, near enough, you know, that's a, 
at that particular point in time, that's a crazy amount of time to go wrestling, I think. Even, at, this was before, we did, really before, we really started seeing this whole big clubbing matches, the big long matches that we see in New Japan, we see in AEW, we've even seen them in NXT, you know. We weren't really as much accustomed to seeing them on a regular basis at this point. And this was kind of the one of the my memory, you know, other than that one at Wrestle Kingdom, one of the first big thirty minute plus matches that we're so accustomed to now. Mm-hmm. I think you kind of like I said, like the endurance aspect of it. Like they both went through cool matches the day before, and like even through like the entire tournament, like almost a month. They nuts this, but it's like this is the final. Like they're not just going to hold back now in the final match. Like if anything, they're going to just go full pelt for it. And yeah, I think, again, I think it was by design almost that you were made to think that Omega was going to win. But like, when you really think about it, you didn't need to win because in the back of his mind, he's like, I've beaten Okada the night before. So he knows that eventually, even if he doesn't win, he needs to another match. And then it's weird because like, him and, well, I think him and Nigel have in common is when they both won their G1, they were both so hot and it seemed like they're, they were going to capitalize on then and there. And they kept going with Okada's champion for that like mega long run. And again, as a Western fan, you're looking at like that doesn't seem like a, a smart decision on the face of it. No, definitely. But I think a great, a great thing about this match as well, in hindsight, looking back, and you feel like every other final since then, they're trying to top it. You're trying to top it. And that's what you should be doing with these finals. You should be always trying to get better than the last one. And I think with this, two, these are two of the best guys that you Japan have had going at it. You know, and given the given the role. One of the things about it we mentioned is that they were, I believe, the, the B-Block, I think, or one of the B-Block finals the year before, and now they were both, like, winning their respective blocks, and now the... Because, like, Naito's starting to gain traction as LIG, but then he's just going to... He was beaten by Omega and Omega's turn, and now he, he and Omega were facing each other in the actual final. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But those are our best favourite matches from the G1's history. I definitely recommend it. Just check out all of those matches if you've never actually seen any of the G1 Climax stuff. They're very, very good matches. Guys, before we finish up, I'm going to throw a question to you and it goes towards the future. We've kind of talked about the history of it. If you, Japan, are able to hold a G1 Climax this year, who is your pick to win it? Now, Grant, I assume you're going for Sanada. Yes, without a doubt. That, he is my number one pick for it. That's entirely I'd be behind him right to the end mm-hmm. no that's a good it's a good shout definitely given the storytelling that's going on right now Scott who would you go with you see that's the thing like it depends again if like Evil's still the champion because then it would make perfect sense for Sonata to win because I actually thought Sonata was gonna before Evil beat him I thought Sonata was actually gonna end up in the final to face Okada because they'd faced in the previous year's final and I thought it was gonna be like a redemption for Sanada, but like, when you look at Sanada, there's not that many people other than the obvious Okada, Ibushi, and, and Tanahashi that they've already used. They can believably put in that position unless you wanted to finally give someone like an Ishii their moment in the spotlight. And personally, I would love it if they managed to finally do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. I'm going to go. I think I, I've, I said this a few months ago. I know the pandemic's changed a lot of things, but I'm sticking with it, even with the current you know, storytelling at the moment. I'm going to go for Hiromo Takahashi. Um, he's, 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 I feel that like it's his time. I know he's a junior and it'd be a bold move, but I'd love to see him go a bit curveball and go different with it. I would have, I probably would have went with, I was going to, I would have went with Osprey 
but I don't think he'll be there. So I think Hiromu's the best shot. The one I'm not sure about the Sanada. I don't think Sanada versus Evil will be a title match if they deal with it. But no, I think Hiromu's a good one. Grant, I know you personally wouldn't disagree. You wouldn't be unhappy if he was to win it. No, definitely wouldn't be unhappy because Hiromu. I mean, if you look at the fact that he came back after that dreadful neck injury, and then had possibly the standout match of the entire Wrestle Kingdom weekend this year. I wouldn't put it past him to be able to put it on, put on an R1 again next year against the heavyweight. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. But uh, that's your bold picks, you know. If they could be wrong, they could be wrong. Who knows? Okada could win it. Hooray! Hence <laughs> <laughs> my enthusiasm for the third best drop kick in the business. But we're not going to get into that again. <laughs> we're not going to into that again. Uh, but that has been our look back at the history of the G1 Climax. For a change, it's a bit of a, a different pace for us. We're used to really talking more about the Western side of wrestling. We occasionally like to talk about the Eastern side of wrestling, give that a bit of the, you know, praise that it's due. It is fantastic stuff going into it. But that is getting regular praise on a monthly basis. From my two panelists today, Grant and Scott, the regular host of East Meets West. Guys, you had a recent show on the Suplex Retweet Extra Feed, talking about the most recent, you know, events going on in New Japan, you know, the, the New Japan Cup and everything being evil. <laughs> yeah. uh, everything to, is evil. We had to break it up into two. We had to do a, kind of a preview for the New Japan Cup itself and then do everything else in a separate show because the New Japan came back with a bang recently and everything. Looking at August, uh, they've got the current new six-man chance. They've got this new American tournament. It looks like it's maybe another two-show month, but... Uh, we're not entirely complaining because we did want New Japan back. There's so much stuff going If you've enjoyed listening to this show about the New Japan content, you can catch there, guys, on the Suplex Retreat Extra feed. They've got a lot of great stuff coming up over the next few weeks in New Japan, including every Friday for the next few weeks. They've got their US tournament, which will feature all the, their stars who can't get to the country at the moment due to the pandemic. So that'll be interesting to see who wins that when you've got the likes of Brody King, who used to be in, usually in Ring of Honor. You've got the likes of Kenta as well. There's so much great names in there. It's definitely worth checking out. In the coming weeks here at Suplex Retweet, we've got some fantastic shows. Next week, we're going to be talking We're going to be talking about Brett Hitman Hart, which should be interesting, so stay tuned for that. And we've also, the week after that, got a look back at ECW, which will be a good one as well. That one. So some great shows coming up over the next few weeks. And we've, as I mentioned there, so much great stuff coming up. It's on the Suplex Retweet extra feed as well. We've got the Raw Report. We've got Anyway Back to the Wrestling looking at SmackDown. The guys that are doing East meets West. And we've also got Saturday Draft Live, hosted by Scott, amongst others, talking about our Fantasy League. Something a bit different, something unique. Definitely worth checking out all those great shows. But, and also you can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Tweet. We're also on YouTube, where you can find some great shows that we're getting back onto that platform as well, including, as I mentioned at the start of the show, the You Conspiracy Theory and also our Quiz Showdown uh, series as well. Uh, I'd like to thank my panel, first of all, Scott McLeod. Thank you very much. Uh, Grant McRobbie, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Mm-hmm. And our partial observer and producer, Kwaku Aji. Kwaku, I hope you've learned a wee bit about Japanese wrestling a bit more there. You seem to be adding to it in the last of all these shows. Domo Arigato, Stephen Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I have been Steve Wilson, and we'll see you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet now proudly presents Suplex Retweet!
bonus content on WWE, AEW, NXT, WCW, Scottish and World Independent Promotions. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple and Android podcasting sites as well as YouTube. Head over to suplexretweet.com now!